Coming to you live from the Badlands of Texas, 360 degrees around the earth, from Southern Australia all the way to Northern Ireland. You're listening, or you are watching Midnight Radio. We have a special guest with us today. We have Thomas Hargrove. He's a retired Washington, D.C.-based investigative journalist and former White House correspondent. Let me bring him up right now. He founded the nonprofit Murder Accountability Project in 2015 to track unsolved homicides nationwide. We'll be talking to him today. And before we start, I'd like to thank our executive producers, Texas Gigi and Lady Lisa. Thank you very much. Thomas Hargrove, thank you very much for being on the program today. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. So what led you from being an investigative journalist and former White House correspondent, I know you've answered this many times before, to being the chairman of the Murder Accountability Project, and what drove you the way that you are into numbers? Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I was an investigative journalist for most of my career in newspapering, and I... Um, uh, I did a project, a national reporting project in 2010, which we ended up calling Murder Mysteries. Uh, it was a year-long look at unsolved homicide in the United States. We, um, we put together uh, what at the time was the most complete accounting of homicide, starting with FBI data and then assembling data from states that were not reporting to the FBI. We would make requests under the Freedom of Information Act. And so we, uh, from the very get-go, we established a more complete data set than was available to the FBI. Um, and during that project, I, I came to realize how few resources uh, police have, especially homicide detectives. I'm sorry, my wife is uh, taking our dogs out for a walk. Not a problem. But um, <laughs> the, um, um, the problem is that there's no master list that um, homicides um, are not being recorded as an official act of, go of government. If you go to London, if you go to Berlin, if you go to most uh, capitals in the Western world and ask for a printout of all unsolved homicides, they can do that. We can't do that here in the United States because, as I said, there is not an official list of murder. So is and it so who... Let me get this straight so I can wrap my brain around this. Is it recorded department by department or city by city, but just not one master list? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, the, the official accounting of homicide and of all major crimes is called the Uniform Crime Report, which was created by Congress in 1930. But it was always and still is a voluntary program. Police do not have to report to it if they don't want to, and many don't. So um, unlike uh, more centralized controls in most other uh, democratic Western nations, we don't have a master list. In fact, there are no layers of, of review uh, in America. If a local uh, homicide investigation fails, that's the end of it. And it's not that way in most of the world. Is there a reason that this there's not a master list? Because the the list we do have, you know, I, I write articles about murder, and I go off the master list of what is reported that you just mentioned. But not everything is reported. But I know that there's uh, 
government programs and stuff that use those numbers for their reports. Is there a reason why it hasn't been reported or they've just didn't have to. So they didn't. Yeah. So it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but uh, a great many police departments don't make their uh, records, uh, even summaries of their uh, cases public. Um, They're not required by law to do so. Um, So uh, many don't. I mean, it's it's just the way it is in America. Um, There is an anti-federalist reflex that has always existed in the United States. We don't want Big Brother um, staring over our shoulder. And so the idea that uh, there would be a mandatory reporting uh, requirement uh, by local police to the, the big federal government is a tough sell in America, always has been. Uh, So for that reason, uh, the official accounting of crime, the Uniform Crime Report, is a voluntary program. Wow. And um, we're trying to make it mandatory. We contact, there are entire states that don't participate. And we go to them and say, under the Freedom of Information Act, we would like to know what data you have on major crimes, especially murder. Um, If we have to go to court, then the argument is, Your Honor, the people of, and you fill in the blank, Illinois, we, we sued the Illinois State Police, or the people of the United States, we're currently in a lawsuit uh, against the federal government. The people have a right to know how they're being murdered and whether those murders are being solved. We've yet to lose with that argument. And so we're trying to build a more complete accounting of homicide uh, using Freedom of Information Act rules. And we've been pretty successful. Uh, if you go to our website at murderdata.org, you will see what is, w- without question or debate, the most complete accounting of homicide available anywhere in the United States. Let me go ahead and show everybody what this looks like. What your website looks like. There it is. While we're talking here, they can look at it uh, just for a little bit there. And, uh, well, that's not really showing what your reports, your analytics look like. Let's throw a little bit of that on there so they have an idea. All right. So also, you talked about your lawsuit for a little bit. Uh, your lawsuit against the federal government was actually against the FBI, and it's been going on for four years now? Yeah, this is actually kind of an interesting story. Uh, four years ago, a, a friend of mine who was actually a, um, an assistant uh, secretary of the interior for policy matters uh, came to me and asked what I knew about uh, Native American homicides. And I told him, um, well, I know that a great many of them, probably most of them, are not being reported to the FBI, uh, which was a shock to him. Two days later, uh, I and my um, vice chairman were uh, sitting across the desk from Tara Sweeney, who is the Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs. And we gave her a report, which you can download at our website, uh, which showed um, uh, state by state and county by county uh, the total number of unreported uh, Indian murders. And that just shocked her. And uh, the next day after the meeting, uh, Tara Sweeney's um, uh, assistant called me and said, the secretary asks if you would uh, make that uh, report you gave her public. 
And so I talked about it with our board members and we thought we're nothing if not a tool of the interior department. So we did. We, we published on, online uh, that report, which you can still download. And um, in the coming weeks, my phone started to ring as journalists around the country called and said, you know, you're right. We have pretty prominent Indian murders in our county, and they are not in uh, the, the SHR, the Supplemental Homicide Report, which is part of the Uniform Crime Report. They're not there. We can see that they're not there. Every time that happened, uh, I asked, who was the agency who investigated that case? And every time it was the same answer, the FBI. That's when uh, I should have noticed this a long time ago, but that's when I realized the FBI has never reported a homicide to the Uniform Crime Report. And then we discovered that there actually was a law requiring them to do so. Congress in 1988 passed the Federal Uniform Crime Reporting Act, which took effect on January 1st, 1989, which requires all federal law enforcement, including the Department of Defense, to report major crimes to the Uniform Crime Report. So although the Uniform Crime Report is a voluntary program, it's not for federal law enforcement. They're required by law to report. Nothing happened. When that law took effect, uh, federal law enforcement did not report data to the official record of crime and didn't for decades. And so we've filed a couple of lawsuits. Um, More may be coming. But uh, the idea is that we're trying to compel the federal government uh, to report uh, more than 30 years worth of unreported homicides. The FBI has recently started to report now. Um, They reported three murders in uh, 2020 and uh, uh, 23 murders in 2021. So it's a start. Uh, that's the, those are not the correct numbers. They investigated more than those, but um, they are now, for the first time ever, starting to report homicides. So we're starting to make progress. So let me get this straight. The Uniform Crime Report is the law that the FBI are supposed to report. Yes. It's a federal law, but not for the different states. And correct. then the FBI was not reporting when they were lawfully supposed to report. They weren't reporting murders that they were investigating. What kind of murderers do the FBI investigate? So it has to be murder under special circumstances. Uh, An everyday murder uh, probably would not fall under federal jurisdiction. Uh, Murder on Indian reservations where the FBI is the primary uh, uh, lead agency for major case investigations, they, sh- they should be reporting and, and really have to under the law. Uh, we don't know. We know that so far, looking at the data that they have reported, a majority of these cases are Native Americans, but there are other murders too. We don't, uh, we don't begin to understand the nature of why they fall under federal uh, primary jurisdiction, but they do. A, a, a homicide that requires FBI involvement on any federal land can be a federal case. So murder uh, on a, um, uh, on an, in a national park or federal land of any sort would, in theory, fall under the FBI's jurisdiction. Wow. That's, uh, that's something, that's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people that die in national parks or go missing. I don't know if that's 
that's not on the same report for sure. We also sued the National Park Service and um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, we've sued the uh, Department of Defense, and uh, they're doing a better job. Uh, we're in negotiations with the Army and the Air Force um, and have had uh, virtually no success with the Navy. But um, uh, the military is doing a, a better job than the FBI is so far in negotiating to try to settle our lawsuit. What made you come up with the murder accountability project, the actual physical numbers? Where do you get the data? How do you compile it? Do you use CSV? And what year did you come out with the actual database in the current form it's in? Uh, it literally goes back to that 2010 national reporting project. And we started posting it online starting then. And I never stopped. Um, I retired in 2015 and uh, I was kind of happy that um, my bureau, my, my news bureau shut down. Everyone had to go home. Mm-hmm. And that was okay with me. I was of retirement age. They gave me a nice uh, fat severance check. I was able to pay off my mortgage and start retirement immediately. And the first thing I did was started filing the papers to create a nonprofit organization. Um, I had to get a lawyer to come up with a charter. Anyway, it was a fascinating process. We now exist. We're an entity unto ourselves. We have the uh, authority to be able to file lawsuits, which was the whole idea. And um, we have been, from the very first moment of our existence, we've been making as ever so public as ever we can everything we know about homicide. So every smidgen of data is there. You can see it through our um, our online interfaces. The analytics section you were showing a few minutes ago is a, a very powerful tool for anyone who wants to know more about murder. You can also call up individual murders. If you know someone who is murdered, you go to the search cases tab. Um, but it, it just tells you a lot about um, the nature of murder or specific murders. We actually built this website with the intention of being an aid to law enforcement. So a detective has a suspect, and he is just sure this is not this guy's first rodeo. Uh, the detective will build um, what's called a timeline for the, the um, suspect. Everywhere where this guy has lived, um, and then you can, uh, the question is, how do you prove that he may have killed before? The first step is to go to our website and um, you go to every place where the, your suspect has lived and you look to see if there are unsolved murders that seem to match his MO. If there are, you then have a quality conversation with local police in that other jurisdiction. Um, this that this that we make available really should not be up to a group of volunteers like us. It ought to be a government function, but it's not. So we exist to try to plug that gap. We hope someday Congress puts us out of business by making uh, reporting data mandatory. Oh, this is our um, our algorithm for uh, spotting serial murders. Um, you're looking at. Um, the clusters. Years, yeah, these are clusters that had uh, unusually high levels of um, of unsolved murders. Yeah, you see that little gray uh, circle over Long Island. Uh, that's Lisk, the Long Island serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the 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 brown uh, pie over uh, Chicago are the Chicago homicides. Uh, Fifty one. 
uh, well, uh, 51 unsolved strangulations of women that we are confident were not committed by 51 separate men. Mm-hmm. Um, in St. Louis, they have a very low clearance rate. They've suffered that. So a lot of the murders look serial and they almost certainly are involving, um, gangland activities. Um, you can, um, you can set a time parameter that you are interested in and, um, go ahead and slide it all the way, slide it all the way to the left. All right. It says on the gender female also. Yeah. Is there female? Yeah. We, we, we now don't think that it works very well for men, but it definitely works for females. Oh, wow. Um, so, so just for an example, for those of you that are looking, I'm over Missouri right now. It has 73 homicides and only 22 of those are solved. The weaponry, strangulation, or hanging. Yeah. Yeah, uh, St. Louis has had a hard time. Uh, the St. Louis Police Department just recently posted data that suggests that they've gotten a lot better at clearing homicides. We hope that information is correct. But historically, they've had a very low clearance rate. Atlanta, look at the big pie over Atlanta. That's the largest cluster that we know of, of unsolved strangulations. Um, yeah, strangulations? Yeah, 134, of which only 33 were cleared. Um, Three yeah. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a very good uh, investigative journalist down in Atlanta. I did a multi-television series about the Atlanta strangulations. Um, it made the Atlanta Police Department very unhappy, but um, we thought they were right. Anyway, the data suggests something awful happened. We think there were several serial killers active in Atlanta. Going to Gary, Indiana. You'll have to go up a little bit. Yeah. It's right outside of Chicago. It's not showing it. Yeah. It's, it's a little north. Pull back a little bit more. There. See that orange circle? In the upper left-hand corner of Indiana, right at the bottom of the uh, Lake Michigan. Oh, there we go. Little up. Go up a little bit. A little bit more. Anyway, so uh, uh, look at. Um, okay, now now you're you're below Gary. Okay. Anyway, Gary, Indiana had a cluster of uh, unsolved strangulations, um, and uh, I had a series of conversations with the Gary Police Department. There it is. So do you see? That red circle in the upper left-hand corner of Gar- of Indiana, just um, at the very bottom of Lake Michigan, oh, it's orange. It's up, orange. go up. Take your insertion point up. Go up. <laughs> go up. Go there. Okay. Is that it? Uh, let's see. Now that one's uh, that one is. You, you, you're on the wrong period. You're in the right place. Uh, but that was an arsonist. Um, okay. So uh, put the year selector, uh, set it from uh, 1980 to uh, 2008 on the year selector. And 2008 right here. Uh-huh. All right, there we go. And so try the green. There you go, strangulations. Okay. That's it. So, um, okay. 
There we go. Yeah, uh, it's showing 20, um, uh, 20 strangulations, of which only five were solved. So 15 strangulations were unsolved, meaning that um, most of these strangulations uh, were, were un, uncleared. And um, we had a conversation uh, for several months uh, trying to get the uh, Gary Police Department to accept, to accept the possibility that they had a uh, an active serial killer. What year was this? Uh, to, the year that I contacted them was 2010. Uh, and so uh, we had data for 2000, uh, first started. Uh, 1980 to 2008. And um, in 2010, uh, the, um, the public information officer for Gary uh, called me back after I uh, gave him a spreadsheet of the initial data and he said, I checked with our homicide detective, our homicide detectives, and we have no unsolved uh, serial killings in Gary, which when you think about it is an impossible statement to be able to logically make. Um, if, they're un- if they're not solved, then you don't know yes or no, were they serial in nature? Uh, anyway, they had a lot of, um, a lot of unsolved strangulations in Gary. They were, they were just convinced that none of them could be serial, even though they didn't know who did it. And um, we, uh, we put names and narratives to the victims. And when we did that, we saw there was a, a horrible pattern to it, that these were um, uh, mostly uh, young women of uh, sex worker age who uh, were recovered in empty buildings, abandoned properties, uh, alley, alleyways, but they were discarded out of doors, uh, which is not how most strangulations occur indoors, by the way, but these victims were strangled and deposited out of doors. Uh, because of the commonality of the victims, because of the MO similarities, it just screamed serial murder. And we even started sending registered letters uh, to the um, to the mayor and to the police chief, saying, "Look, we're about to publish that you have an active serial killer, and we really think you should talk to us." And they never would. Um, the Lake County Coroner's Office did agree with us, and they assigned an assistant coroner. She found three other homicides that looked quite similar, and so. Um, she started urging the um, the Gary Police Department to consider 18 murders. They wouldn't uh, talk to her either. Um, it was very, very frustrating, but we were able to publish that authorities uh, took the, um, the finding of our algorithm seriously, and uh, we were able to publish that in other places where there was uh, Youngstown, Ohio, also opened an, an active investigation because of the algorithm. We were able to publish the article, and uh, that was it. The project won a bunch of awards, and I went on for another five years doing other things. And I would have thought nothing more about it, except the phone rang to tell me that um, something had just happened in Gary. And what it was was um, next door to Gary, the Hammond police were summoned to a Motel 6 where they found the body of 19-year-old Africa Hardy. They were able to make a, a rapid arrest of the man who had rented that hotel room, and they um, 
they charged him with homicide. And as sometimes happens with these guys, he started confessing. You got me? Um, I don't want to live anymore, so I, I don't want to hang around the rest of my life on uh, uh, in prison. So I'm going to tell you I've been doing this for many, many years. Uh, I've done it in many states. I've been active for, for decades, and um, I've killed a great many women. Um, he was, we're pretty sure, telling the truth. His name was Garen, uh, uh, Darren Dion Vaughn. It's spelled Van, but he pronounces it Vaughn. Um, we think the confession he gave on uh, the days immediately after his arrest were truthful. And he said he killed way more people in uh, Illinois than he did in Gary, that um, when the, the killing urge would reach him, uh, he would want to leave. He was living in his brother's house, and he wanted to leave because he didn't want to harm his family. And so he would hop on a, a bus and then hop on a train just to get distance between himself and his uh, family. Um, if you look at the map we developed uh, for the Chicago strangulations, you'll see that uh, there's a linear pattern to um, uh, uh, several uh, murders that occurred along the green line for the Chicago Transit Authority, that was the train that he would take. Uh, the green line uh, terminus is just outside Gary, Indiana. So if he hopped on the CTA, as he said he did, um, it would have been the green line that he would have taken into Chicago. And there were quite a few uh, scattered body recovery sites along the green line. And we think he is responsible for most, many, certainly, probably most of those murders as well. So you tried to give the Gary, Indiana law enforcement this information and they said they didn't need it. Right. Uh, so Vaughn made one mistake only in his long career. He murdered a woman outside of Gary. He uh, went up against a pretty good uh, homicide department and um, uh, the Hammond Police Department caught him right off and spent quality time interviewing him. Um, and you can, if you go to our website, you can see a, a very fascinating and chilling 10-minute interview in which he was going over mm -hmm. uh, all of his, uh, all of his patterns. Uh, so Gary wouldn't take the information and seriously look at it when you're saying, hey, I think there's a serial killer here. And you would have looked at all this information and looked at all the different patterns, you know, seeing the, the mode of murder and the and that it hasn't been found. And you pinpointed Gary, Indiana to call them. But it is good that they actually reported their murders to the uh, that's true. report. So that's good. I want to play this clip for everybody about the Darren Vaughn murder case right now. Five investigates the confessions of an Indiana serial killer named Darren Vaughn. He is serving life in prison for the murders of seven women in and around Gary, Indiana. But we have learned Vaughn has told police he's killed many more across the border in Illinois. Here's Rob Stafford. I call it my, my 
Serial killer Darren Vaughn's mistakes, as he calls them, are actually murders. And Darren Vaughn told police in Hammond, Indiana, he's made a lot of mistakes. Four or five in California, how many in North Carolina? One, because I ain't staying all. Texas, I think there's two. At least two in Milwaukee. And there's three in Minnesota. I'm saying about seven in Detroit. How many in Chicago? Chicago? It's a lot. Vaughn is serving life for the murders of seven women in and around Gary, Indiana in 2014. But these police tapes show the divorced Marine who was kicked out of the Corps confessing to even more killings in Illinois. They have way more in Indiana. Where were you staying at over there? I don't have to stay anywhere. You just... I just... I get on the train, I get on the bus. He's completely matter-of-fact when he confesses to it. Ben Kubrick of the Algorithm Podcast obtained the confession tapes through a Freedom of Information request. Police officers, I think, they're playing this game of trying to act like what he's saying is normal to get him to keep talking. On the tapes, Vaughn tells investigators about his urge to kill and need to travel to find his victims. I try to get far away from my family. He says sometimes he killed for a reason. She struck me. And that is struck, that's it. I don't like being hit. Sometimes for no reason at all. Casper was my friend. I didn't mean to kill her. What, what led up to that? I was already angry. We believe that we're dealing with two or three serial killers. We think Mr. Vaughn could be one of them. Thomas Hargrove founded the Murder Accountability Project and has studied 50 unsolved strangulations of women in Chicago. Vaughn goes to prison in Texas. What happens to that strangulation rate in Chicago? It drops. Before Vaughn's murder arrest, he served five years for sexual assault starting in July 2008. We sent you a a bar chart. If you look at the year-by-year number of murders, you'll see that there's a precipitous decline in the number of homicides of unsolved strangulations in 2009 and afterwards. He talks about taking the train and bus to Chicago. Are any of these homicides along a train or bus route? Boy, are they. There are eight or nine body recovery sites along the CTA Green Line. But today, Chicago police released a statement saying there is no evidence linking the cases to each other or to suggest there's a serial killer. Detectives are continuing to investigate the cases individually as CPD works to seek justice on behalf of the victims and their families. How do you connect the rage with these people that they're they're random? Random Random acts of violence, but Hargrove thinks there's a pattern here and hopes police departments in Chicago and across the country sit down with Darren Vaughn. They located the body, but it wasn't the right one. Rob Stafford, NBC5 Investigates. There's a thank. I'd like to thank NBC for letting us use that clip. Mr. Hargrove, I wasn't expecting you to be on that clip, actually, because I didn't see it to that point. But that takes us into what happened in Chicago, and I know you're involved in a Discovery Channel uh, investigation, really, about the Chicago Strangler. Yeah, they uh, they did a nice uh, three part, uh, uh, three hours worth of video, and they did a very good job. Um, uh, in fact, uh, MAP doesn't occur. The Murder Accountability Project uh, doesn't start getting airtime until the uh, uh, about a third of the way through the second episode. They focus on the victims during the the first uh, the first year, first 
uh, episode. It's very well done. Uh, the Hunt for the Chicago Strangler, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first time I was ever listed as a television producer. Um, so that was that was interesting. Um, and they also um, they also paid for the cost. We're an all volunteer organization. Uh, so no one gets paid, but they paid for the cost of obtaining the um, uh, the interview recordings with Darren Vaughn. Uh, the Hammond Police Department expected to uh, receive uh, some deferment costs for the release of those recordings, and uh, the Discovery Channel paid for that. So we're very grateful that they did that. And so all of the um, all of the tapes you were seeing of Vaughn. Uh, came from that Freedom of Information Act request uh, that the Discovery Channel paid for. Could you, let's talk about numbers. Could you tell us what the numbers are of murders that occur in the United States every year? Okay. Um, We're in the middle of a homicide surge. Most people don't realize that. Um, We used to average about... 14 or 15,000 murders a year. Uh, then in 2020, following the, uh, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there was a, a total breakdown in relations between police and the communities they serve in a great many large cities. And that breakdown um, increased uh, homicides in America, especially black-on-black murders. So that uh, we went from 14 or 15,000 murders a year to uh, 24, 25, 26,000 murders a year. Um, that surge is continuing. Uh, when there's, there, we're still counting uh, the year 2022, but based on preliminary data that we're seeing at the Centers for Disease Control, it's quite clear that uh, the surge will continue through 2023. There is some hope that, um, I'm sorry, 2022, there is some hope that uh, looking at some of the um, uh, major cities that do advanced reporting of homicides, that we may see a decline in homicides this year. But we're in the middle of a surge. It's been going on uh, ever since the Floyd murder, uh, and it's really quite historic. We've never had uh, as big a jump in murder as we did following Floyd's homicide. And um, we're learning a lot about murder, a lot that we did not know. We don't fully understand uh, the exogenous effects that caused this. Exogenous meaning uh, something outside of a normal system. Um, the, the breakdown in police relations with the communities they serve um, is not not something that normally is supposed to happen. And um, we're now learning a lot about what happens when police community relations break down and it's nothing good. Um, so uh, you can you can go to our website, you can call up your hometown police department. Um, and if you don't like what you see, uh, we hope you don't keep quiet about that uh, because we're hoping data itself becomes a political force. If you are unhappy with the clearance rate in your town and the odds are that you won't be, uh, that we hope you'll have a conversation with your mayor and city council member and neighborhood association president um, that uh, there needs to be a better accounting 
for what happens to victims of homicide. Uh, the clearance rate needs to reverse. We currently are at an all-time low for clearance rate in 2020, the most recent year for which we have complete data. Only 54% of our homicides were cleared by arrest, which is the lowest it has ever been. And so we're hoping that gets turned around. And that comes down to improving the resources that police have. We don't have enough uh, trained detectives. We don't have enough forensic personnel to go to crime scenes. We don't have enough laboratory capacity to process uh, the evidence that's brought back from crime scenes. We don't have enough of everything. We also need better relations between police and their communities. And that's a political problem. And so we need elected leaders to tackle that to improve the relations between police and um, and the people they serve. We also need to get away from George Floyd-type killings. Uh, we need to stop those, and we need to train police on how to avoid uh, unnecessary homicides. Uh, Floyd did not need to die. Um, he was suspected of passing a counterfeit uh, $20 bill. You don't die for that. So we need to make changes, uh, starting with better resources for police and better training. And we just have to keep knocking on that door until our elected leaders agree and start uh, providing what is necessary to turn this vicious spiral around and start increasing the rates at which we clear homicides and thereby reducing the number of homicides that we have. You said 26,000 murders a year. Was that, was that correct? That, that was the total according to the CDC wow. in uh, 2021. Wow, that is a lot. And how many, okay, I was going to ask you about Denmark, how many murders there were in Denmark, but before we go there, how is a real murder investigation different from what we see on CSI Miami? How long does it take to actually get DNA back and, and different things like that and the cost of investigations and uh, what it puts a police force through. And we were talking about the George Floyd protests, but uh, police departments in different areas having their money cut, is that going to affect them catching the murderers? Yeah. Well, first, um, I hate to speak ill of uh, television crime shows, but um, murders are not solved in 60 minutes by beautiful people standing in front of gigantic computer monitors. That um, just isn't the way it works. It takes an awful lot of uh, shoe leather, uh, knocking on doors. It takes manpower. It takes um, uh, laboratory capacity. It takes um, technicians who can work a crime scene. It's a very complicated business. Uh, getting more complicated as technology improves. Um, to your question about DNA, it can take years to get DNA back. In fact, um, there was initially hope in the 1990s that DNA would be kind of a magic bullet, that it would uh, start solving murders right and left. Actually, it's a mixed blessing. So, yes, it can clear uh, homicides, including old, old serial homicides. It can do that. But also it, it prompts what I call a, a, a DNA pause, if uh, detectives have worked a case and have a suspect and have a uh, DNA that they believe will match that suspect, then they send everything off to the lab and they wait. 
And that wait can be many months. It can be uh, one or two years. Uh, crime labs all over America are horribly backed up. When they get the data back, it is not uncommon to discover, no, uh, your principal sub- suspect is not the guy. The, the DNA does not match. And then what do you do? Uh, you, you're back to ground one uh, to you know the very first step. And yet many months or years have passed and you're starting all over again. So, um, you know, it's, it's a mixed blessing. There is no magic bullet. Uh, it is still a labor intensive uh, enterprise to clear a homicide and it still requires resources. Um, you can't do this by robots. We need human beings knocking on doors and doing what humans do, which is asking questions and, trying to come up with um, who likely committed this murder. I think a lot of people don't realize that how long it takes to get DNA back sometimes. I know there's a recent advancement that happened in the last two years where they're able to get the uh, match the DNA genetically with someone else in your family to whoever the murderer is. So that seems like that's working a little bit better, but it's an intensive process and it's a very little company. And from my understanding is they're only taking the most high profile cases because the CEO needs to do that to raise enough money for the company. Well, so uh, you're talking about genetic DNA matching and um, that um, that's been around for, for a while. Um, Again, it's not a magic bullet. So if you have the perps DNA and, uh, the perps DNA is not in uh, CODIS, which is the FBI's uh, master database for uh, DNA files. Um, you then can try to match it against um, uh, a growing number of large data sets for uh, uh, people who are trying to establish their genealogy. Uh, a growing number of uh, genealogical firms uh, we'll send you a, a, a DNA kit and you can mail it back and you can um, compare your DNA and find uh, relatives you don't know about. Uh, I've done that. It's very cool. I've also, when I did that, gave permission uh, that my DNA can be added to a public uh, database of uh, DNA um, so that uh, if, um, if you have a distant cousin who may be a killer, um, those databases can help. But it's almost as much work as uh, every other kind of homicide investigation, uh, just knowing that um, there is a large family of people who have a distant match to a suspect's DNA doesn't really immediately identify who the killer is. Uh, It's as much a... um, a matter of detective work as any other part of homicide investigations. It can take weeks or months or years uh, to be able to do a genealogical match to the point that you're able to identify a particular person in that family because you don't have their DNA. You just know that there are cousins and uncles uh, who have a, a similar DNA but not an exact match. As I say, there are no magic bullets. I remember, of, I don't know, maybe a decade or 50, you know what? I think it might've been 20 years ago that Watson was playing Jeopardy with Alex Trebek. And since then AI has advanced a lot. And I was looking at your, your, I think it was your latest Ted talk you gave in Florida. And, uh, 
Man, I'll tell you what, you guys should watch that. I'm going to put a link to that in the description below this video. One of the things you talked about was the odds of being murdered, but you also talked about linkage blindness. Do you think AI can help with linkage blindness? And for people that don't know, could you describe what linkage blindness is? Yeah, so um, criminologists have been aware of linkage blindness since the 1980s. Uh, Linkage blindness is the uh, very human failure to recognize a pattern. Um, if, uh, if someone is murdered, uh, a detective is assigned to the case. If someone else is murdered, usually a different detective is assigned to that case. If there are similarities uh, to the case, those similarities usually go unnoticed unless the two detectives happen to be talking shop over the water cooler, which usually does not happen. If, um, if the two homicides happened in neighboring uh, jurisdictions, that conversation never happens. Linkage blindness, it's a real problem, which is why criminologists for decades have speculated that probably most series of homicides go undetected simply by the way that we uh, process homicides and how we assign people to investigate homicides. There's no real careful oversight uh, by a supervisor looking for commonalities. So um, that's linkage blindness. Can artificial intelligence uh, fix that? Yes and no. So um, the problem is we don't have a master list of of very granular details. So um, if if the killer is leaving a, a series of messages at the crime scene saying, catch me if you can, written in blood, um, that's not going to get recorded in any kind of database that I'm aware of. Um, the detectives will know. So mm-hmm. fortunately, that will probably be a linked series. But generally speaking, uh, the granular details are not being reported anywhere. Um, there was an attempt and still is an attempt by the FBI to try to build a database of unsolved major crimes called the Violent Crimes Database. It, it's run by VICAP, the Violent uh, Criminal, um, uh, the Violent Crimes Investigation Program down at Quantico. Um, VICAP, for years, tried to convince police to spend two hours to report all of the granular details. And not surprisingly, overwhelmingly, police didn't do that because they don't have time to do that. Uh, They're just overwhelmed with unsolved murders. The last thing they have time to do is to feed a database that the FBI is running. So um, without having the kinds of data that can make links readily possible, um, you would think there's no hope. However, we've developed a a technique, an algorithm that can take very simple information. So the, uh, the Uniform Crime Report has something called the Supplemental Homicide Report. You can access those data at our website under the Search Cases tab. And um, what we did was we used our augmented SHR data. Remember, we're, we're filling in gaps. Uh, entire states don't report to the FBI, but we've convinced them to report to us. Uh, we've augmented those data. And what the algorithm does is to sort hundreds of thousands of murders into about 10,000 groups, uh, sorting by the county where the murder occurred, 
the gender of the victim, the method of killing, uh, the weapon that was used. And then one more thing, uh, the algorithm uh, calculates in that group what the clearance rate was. And then it looks for large clusters of similar uh, victims in similar geographies that were killed through similar methods that had a ridiculously low clearance rate. And when you do that, um, generally speaking, most of history's great serial killers, if you want to call them great, uh, their most prolific serial killers pop right up in the data. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the serial killer that terrorized Seattle for many years, the Green River Killer, uh, we actually used him as our guide in developing the algorithm and his murders popped up uh, right away. The algorithm does work. Uh, it's a very simple system looking for large clusters that had a very low clearance rate. Um, what you have to do then is once the algorithm says this looks odd, you then have to put names and narratives uh, to those victims. And after you do that, you sit back and read through the narratives and you decide for yourself, yes or no, do these look like the work of a serial killer? We, we did that in Gary, Indiana. Uh, we did that in Chicago. We've done that in a lot of places. And um, usually you know right away, yes or no, these are or are not likely to be a serial uh, pattern. And so it can work and it has worked, but it's not perfect. You know, I think a narrative is a good place to start with the AI. I recently looked up Watson to see how he was doing after Jeopardy, and they say he went to medical school. And he's actually at a, where is it? It's in, is it a hospital in Boston? Cancer. And they use him, they use Watson there to look at all the medical journal, journals to see if there's any new uh, treatments for the particular cancer patient they're looking at. So I was thinking... You were talking about the narratives. Instead of collecting the information yourself, have an AI go out, get the information of the murder stories in the actual newspapers, what's available online, and cross-verifying that with MAP. And maybe you can bring more information, have it do the work for you. We'll see. We'll see. Um, right now, all, all we can do is identify... Uh, clusters of similar homicides that had a low clearance rate. Um, again, there's not much to work. This is a minimal information problem. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of data, and you know, a computer can't invent data. Well, some of the AI system, systems do invent <laughs> data. That's what you want. <laughs> yeah, but um, in any event, um, yeah, the computers are not supposed to invent data, and so without that, um, we can't expect artificial intelligence to work magic um there is no magic interesting enough uh ai actually wrote the description of this this show we're doing right now so if you look in the description ai wrote that itself i said his name is thomas hargrove write me a description of the interview i'm going to do and it did so we'll really? see how it, yes nope. that's all i gave it and it did it so i've been it's something i'm working on it's getting quite advanced now it's, it's almost scary uh, your main mo one of your mottos is it does not have to happen. And you gave examples of what your information, how it can be used to reduce murder and how we, the people have the power individually 
to do that. And there's a lady in Chicago that took your information and she was actually using that to make changes to the murders in her community. Could you describe that for us, please? Well, yeah. So um, uh, our mantra is it doesn't have to be this way. And uh, there was a lady, a political activist who um, uh, took our list. So we, we, the Chicago city council asked us to uh, give them a report on why we think there were serial murders in Chicago. And um, we did when we, uh, we, you can, you can download that report to the uh, Chicago city council. We list all 51 murdered women. And what the political activists did was to um, uh, identify the, um, the, the Chicago city council ward in which each woman died and then started calling um, uh, members of the city council asking the question, do you care that some of your constituents are being slaughtered? Which is a great question to ask uh, elected officials if they want to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, that was transformative. Um, and um, that's uh, when um, uh, there was a move afoot to try to get a, um, a review by the Chicago police into uh, these murders. Uh, as you saw with that clip, uh, the Chicago Police Department has yet to be able to document that these cases are connected. Off the record, detectives will tell you, yeah, uh, this is almost certainly a series. On the record, they won't say that. Um, the FBI has believed that these are connected murders for quite a while. Um, but um, there is a reluctance, unless there's proof, in many jurisdictions to speculate about the possibility of a serial murder. So they don't. Telling a story is very powerful to say this is a lady that died in your district. And this is who she was. This is her family. She died. There's number one. Here's number two. This is her name. This is her family. This is her. She died in your district. Do you care about her? This is a four. This is what they all had in common. Do you care? You know, that's a very powerful thing. Or even to look on these maps, everybody that's listening to me, everybody that's watching, to look on these maps, maybe your town's not in there. But you heard of murders in your town. Why is it not in there? Maybe you need to ask some questions and say, hey, maybe you need to report this. You're talking about Beverly Reed Scott. Yes. Who uh, did a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's proof that, uh, that people still matter. And she was just offended that there had been so many uncleared homicides of, of mostly black women. And so she just took the bull by the horns and started doing her own, uh, her own research and uh, then started uh, contacting uh, elected officials saying, do you care? And um, uh, she's one of my heroes. Uh, she did a nice thing. She did. I'm going to put a link to that. All my notes guys where I've, uh, investigated Thomas Hargrove, Mr. Thomas Hargrove, heavy on Mr. I'm telling you, I'm impressed with this man. I'll tell you why. And he never talks about this, but he believes in the data that he's presenting, not just as numbers, but as people. And I'm telling you, it is in his heart because anybody that asks him for an interview, that is a part of his process to get the information on the internet to you guys and to let everybody know and to talk to you about it. So, you know, the importance of it. And then he, he explains what to do with that information. So I'm, I'm very impressed by that. Thank you. That's a very nice thing to say. 
On that note, uh, could you reiterate for us the importance of this information, where this information is going in the future, and what people can do with this information, anything we haven't covered? Well, um, and we try to make it as, go ahead. And Denmark. After oh, that. in Denmark. Yeah. Oh, let's do Denmark first. Okay, we'll so do Denmark a few, first. Uh, a few years ago, I had lunch with the senior homicide investigator for Denmark. And to make conversation, I said, so how many homicides uh, does Denmark have a year? And he said, oh, about 50. And I just about dropped my salad fork. And I asked him, well, of those, how many do you clear by arrest? And he said about 49. And that really got my attention. That's a 98% clearance rate. And um, I asked him, how could that be possible? And he said, well, first of all, every murder comes across my desk. And if a homicide has gone un- unsolved after a few weeks, I'll call down there. And, and, and ask, what's it going to take? Do you need me to come down there? Do you need more resources? Do you need more investigators? What do you need? Because unsolved is not acceptable. That's a layer of review that does not happen in this country. Um, the federal government does not routinely look into unsolved homicides at the local level. The state government does not routinely look into unsolved homicides at the local government. Um, It does happen in some places that there is more resources from on high. Um, The um, uh, one example is in Texas where everyone loves working with Texas Rangers and they make themselves available where it really is working is in the the small state of Wyoming where uh, they have a criminal investigative division um, that uh, has homicide detectives and it is very common for local jurisdictions to call uh, to the state government and say, we need a hand. Uh, we just had our first murder in 12 years. Uh, we've forgotten how to do this, or we just don't have the capacity. Our, our primary homicide investigator retired four years ago. What are we going to do? And so uh, they get assistance, sometimes uh, a very dramatic assistance from the state government. That kind of uh, state-local cooperation is rare, but it definitely is happening in Wyoming. Wyoming has the nation's highest clearance rate. Over the last 45 years, they've cleared 85% of their homicides. And I I swear part of that is because of the very good working relationship between the criminal investigative division at the state government and local police departments. We don't have that in most places in America. In many places, local police hate the state police, the stateies. So, you know, we can have dysfunctional relationships. Uh, But the idea of having multiple layers of review and assistance, I think, is the model that we should be trying to aim our federated government structure toward. We have multiple layers of government. That's what federal means, actually. Mm -hmm. And we need instead... Uh, to have have that as the model and not the the exception, uh, murder should not be a, simply a local affair because quite often, especially in small police departments, they lack the resources to be able to handle a major investigation. I appreciate that you've thought so deeply about this. You're right. I've talked to a lot of uh, law enforcement here in Texas, where I'm from, 
And yeah, they all do love the Texas Rangers. You know, they just get along with them really well. And a lot of times they're friends. So may, perhaps something like that, they have Rangers in every state. Uh, they have their state Rangers, the Indiana Rangers or something. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that would help. So what can individual people do? We have a lot of people watching in the, in the audience right now. If you guys have questions, I have a time for a couple more. If you guys have questions, uh, what can individuals do? What should, can we do with your information for, from the murder accountability project? Uh, two things, basically. First, um, familiarize yourself with what the clearance rates are in all of the jurisdictions that you care about. So go to your hometown, go to your, um, go to your um, city where you're now living, uh, go to places where you're thinking of moving, and just look at how many homicides there are and how many homicides are cleared and ask yourself, am I satisfied with that? And if you're not, then, um, then have conversations with elected leaders. They exist to try to make you happy. And so if you start asking hard questions about why so many murders go unsolved, uh, that can be a, a force unto itself. Another thing you can do, go to our website, murderdata.org. It's free. Uh, everything we do is free. Um, I'm free. I'm not paid to do this. I'm a volunteer. Everything we do is free. And you can be an armchair detective. If you know of a murder case that interests you, you go to the search cases tab, which is right in the middle. <laughs> if you, um, you see search, search cases, and then you can call up. Uh, why don't you, um, you can call up a particular city, but uh, no, you can if you want. Call up Gary, Indiana. So go to uh, unselect all, deselect all, and select Indiana. Uh, let's see, how do I do uh, this? This will take a while to do. But you can pick uh, your jurisdiction, and then you can pick uh, the characteristics of a murder you care about. Um, if, you, um, if you lost someone to homicide, you can say, I lost my, my aunt. And so you pick female you pick the race, uh, you pick the age, uh, you pick the method of killing, and usually you'll find your, your aunt's uh, record right there. You can download the particulars, read the um, how to use tab, uh, but you can, um, you can find the, um, the particular case. And then step back and look at all of the other cases uh, that were similar to the case that you care about. And see what the clearance rate is. If you see that there are uh, way too many unsolved homicides, uh, you may have found a series. Um, you can do this all from your armchair with a laptop. You, do, you can't do this on your phone. You need a, a desktop or a laptop machine. Um, but um, it's really very powerful. I mean, we have um, hundreds of thousands of murders right there. You can... Uh, Call up a, a case that you care about, and you can explore whether other cases that are uncleared seem to be like unto it. And we've had quite a few armchair detectives uh, discover patterns that appear to be important. We had uh, we had one case of a of a guy up in New York State who um, found evidence of a serial killer nobody really knew about, and we contacted the local police and. Uh, they said, yeah, his name was John White, and uh, he died, 
but we were convinced he was a serial killer. How did you know about it? And we told about this amateur who was uh, playing around with the data. It was, that was an interesting case. Um, anyway, you can, um, you can find cases that matter and you might see patterns that are important. Uh, do read the how to use tab first. How to use. Uh, Definitely do that. Yeah. Anyway, you yeah, it's uh, kind of entertaining if in a nerdly kind of way. But if you care about homicide, uh, boy, do we have a website for you. And uh, sometimes you can make a difference just by perusing the data. After the show's over, you guys can go and check out your own cities or the closest metropolitan area closest to you and see see what's going on. I think it'd be important, too, if people know whether or not their city or the you know metropolitan area close to them is actually reporting these murders to that database. Most are. Uh, so we're getting about, lately we've been getting about 80% of the homicides. Um, we're trying to do better than that. Um, we're trying to get the federal government to report data. So we're working the problem. Um, so, but most of them are there. So the Murder Accountability Project is a nonprofit. So if people wanted to donate, they could write that off on their taxes. So Absolutely. We don't need much money. We do need a little bit of money uh, for lawyers. We, um, we do have expenses, licensing expenses. But again, nobody is paid. We're all volunteers. All right. I'd like to thank Thomas Hargrove for taking the time to be with us today and explain exactly what we can do with the Murder Accountability Project, how it can be used as a tool, a real-life tool, to whittle down the murders in the United States. And he said, what, 26,000 a year. That's a lot, with uh, only 54% of those being solved. He, Thomas Hargrove, he, uh, he was giving the speech, and he was telling about the danger and the tipping point of what happens once you go at that number of half being solved and under, and it'll scare the hell out of you. You want to you want to go over that? Just yeah. So um, we find that when um, when most murders go unsolved, uh, that that generally promotes more murder. I mean, why wouldn't it? Um, killers are still walking the streets, so they're available to kill again. They also inspire others because they got away with it, so there appear to be no sanctions for murder. And finally, because um, the murder was not solved, anyone who cared about that victim will feel obliged to take the law into his own hands. So murder begets murder, especially unsolved murder. And... Um, yeah, I mean, the tipping point is real as a uh, city spirals down so that most murders go uncleared, uh, darned if the murder rate doesn't go up and you have more and more people being killed. We're at an incline for murder right now since 2020. We're at an incline for murder. The reports of how many people uh, of the murders come out like every year and a half. We're in 2023. It's going up. Where are we at? 54. Are we down lower now to maybe 51%? Uh, if you really think about this, this gets scary. Yeah. Uh, because we're only having partial data these days, um, it it's a little bit of a challenge to make uh, estimates. But as best as we can tell, the clearance rate is still about 54%. Uh, in the more recent murders. 
So um, it's a problem and it's not getting better. Um, although uh, there are the tea leaves right now suggest that maybe there's been something like a 10% decline in 2023. We hope that's true. We're still at an ele- elevated rate of murder, uh, but we're hoping that the surge starts to subside. Um, but three years of uh, well above average murder is hard and uh that's where we've been for the last three years we're talking about this many people in the united states one percent is a lot of people that equals a lot of people and when you're talking about what your odds are of being murdered which we don't have time to talk about but uh you take the number of people what's the formula to find out how what your odds of being murdered are where you're at yeah, so you take the total number of murders that you see at the Murder Accountability Project, you divide that total number uh, for one year by um, uh, the population, uh, you multiply that number by uh, 100,000, and that's the rate, and then you multiply that rate times life expectancy, which is, you know, what, about 78 years these days, and that then gives you a figure, what are the odds of you being murdered? And in there are communities in America where your odds of being murdered are one in 30. And, um, you know, who wouldn't play the Powerball if those were your odds? But uh, this is a lottery you do not want to win. Um, so, yeah, I mean, murder is a serious problem. Um, it has become um, a major factor for the, um, the deaths of children. Um, uh, death by gunfire is now one of the top 10 causes of uh, childhood death. So, you know, we're living in scary times and um, we need to turn things around and we can turn things around. I mean, uh, I, I want to make sure that your viewers understand it doesn't have to be this way. It's not this way in much of the world. And I think we can turn things around, but it just requires the public uh, to demand action, that we don't want to live in such a world, and to insist that, um, that murders are treated seriously and aggressively, and that killers are caught. Mr. Hargrove, thank you very much for giving us your time and explaining all these things to us and what letting educating us basically letting us know what we can do you know with the tool of the map i i I camp on your website and the thing that stood out to me is that more people don't know about this Uh, so hopefully that'll change yeah thank you thank you for uh the time you've given and this has been a great interview and um we hope that uh, your viewers will use our, our service. It's free. And they're welcome to download our data for free. Uh, we won't be happy until our murder data is on every hard drive in the world. I know I'm going to continue to use it as a research tool, and uh, I'm going to continue to talk about the Murder Accountability Project. Mr. Hargrove, thank you very much. You have a good evening. Thank you, Jerry. You have a good night. You too. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. That was Thomas Hargrove. With, he's the chairman of the Murder Accountability Project. Thanks goes out to him. I'm going to put full 
my full notes there in the description below. It really was written by AI right now, so if you want to read how good AI can work, I just gave it like three or four words as a prompt, and it did it, and it described the interview I just had. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to be back in a few days. Uh, if you'd like to be a executive producer for this program, any donation of $20 or more, whether it's a cash app, dollar sign, midnight rad, midnight radio 101, or if you give a super sticker or a thanks on YouTube, all that goes to produce this show. Thank you guys very much. Or anything below $20, we'll accept anything that goes to, that'll make you a producer of the show. I'd like to thank you guys for showing up and until next time, all my best. Oh, one thing, if you want to see this in better video and better audio quality, check out our podcast on Spotify. That is Midnight Radio on Spotify.